Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. You can see the money getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was settled on 1.9 million. It's it's eye-watering, really, when you think about it. All spent on luxury. She had one room set aside purely for handbags. There's one part of it is floor to ceiling of of three stories glass with a spiral staircase in it. She was seen as this very fragile butterfly. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She was a fraudster who almost bankrupted the tight-knit company she worked for. And with the £1.9 million she stole from Northern Mouldings Limited, she lived a lifestyle akin to a Hollywood superstar. When Julie McBride, also known as Julie Hogg, was eventually caught, she spent years convincing a court that she shouldn't be named in the media, despite her litany of crimes and the eye-watering money she spent on fashion, beauty, jewellery and holidays. A tenacious court reporter, Tanya Fowles, believed McBride, who once faked a cancer diagnosis to spend days off work in a luxurious spa, should not be granted anonymity. And today, she tells me about her own quest for justice to identify McBride as the thief who almost brought down a family firm. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. If we start with this house in Tyrone, there's going to be a proceeds of crime case now in relation to that. Can you describe that house to me and how important it is in this great big story about Julie McBride? The house is where a lot of the money that was taken was spent. And it is it is a huge mansion. I mean, when we were describing it as mansion, I could see various editors were going, take that out, just make it a big house. But this is a mansion. It has a guest cottage on the ground. It's it's There's one part of it is floor to ceiling of, of three stories glass with a spiral staircase in it. It, it really is. It's, it's vast. Sits in its own grounds, beautiful lawns, which she, we understand she had a pet gardener to look after. But right. this is where the money was going. Everything mm-hmm. in that house was unique to her, designed, very over the top. And in, in discussions with the victims who actually were in the house, she would have she had one room set aside purely for handbags designer handbags uh, as far as we know there's five bedrooms but we we that's not they're all en suite by the way and that's not counting a few other rooms on the upper floor that she changed into storage for a very very exclusive designer wardrobe um but it, it is it, that you know and at the improvements that were being done to that along the way if you time it with the charges, you can see the money getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Started off with little amounts of money. By the end, it was 28000 mm. She was taken out in one go. And it was going on this and expensive cars and jewellery and Dubai and all sorts of things. Mm. So tell me a little bit about Julie McBride and when you first 
came across her in, in the course of your course reporting? Well, first of all, Julie McBrien would have been really known as Julie Hogg. Uh, there was a marriage in there, which is a little bit weird. We're not quite sure about it, but she always used her maiden name, Hogg. And that, you know, even if you check the electoral register, she was Hogg all the way through. Um, no harm in that. I did the same myself. But um, this, when she comes to court, she comes as McBrien. And this was in 2016, and she she appeared then. And you, know, I, I clearly remember her coming to court in this beautiful salmon pink coat and looking terribly. I'm so wronged here, you know. Uh, so in the midst of this, there was an anonymity application because she was going to the the, the stress of being known. This this coming out, she was threatening to kill herself. Now. That's probably the worst aspect of this entire story, bar the, the abuse of the of the funds. She managed to get this cloak of anonymity for six years. Uh, never heard of before. Unprecedented treatment by the court. Didn't have to turn up for her remand hearings. She was seen as this very fragile butterfly. But on the outside, obviously, as journal, journalists, we were tracking her and watching what she was doing, and she was flying. So we opposed constantly these orders. And what always struck me was two weeks before her first appearance, her ex-husband appeared in court on charges of quite brutal domestic abuse. She didn't mind being named in that as the victim and quite was quite forceful about that. Those charges disappeared. They were found to be unfounded and they dropped. But Julie continued this on right to the last and it was a bitter fight to get that overturned because all she had to do was say, I'll kill myself, I'll kill myself, mm-hmm. and that was it. I've just found the original charges. She was originally charged with 607 counts, and that's 56 pages of charges. But then as it came to trial, that was whittled away down to specimen counts of 27. But that was the highest number of charges ever to come before a court on record. So she had been working in the accounts department of Northern Mouldings Limited. Um, is that a small company or is it a large employer? It would be small, but the parent company would be big, but a very okay. family orientated firm. And, you know, they their staff are very, very loyal to them. And uh, they yes, they're, they're, there is great investment in the background. But this was a, a, a happy factory setting. Um, and it was quite a distance from Julie's home, so she was able to put on a different persona there that, oh, I'm my husband's so wealthy, that's why I can drive a Porsche to work, that's why I can do this, do that. Um, but she, I mean, she was very sophisticated. She managed to buy or obtain a printer which was so good. The bank statements that she was creating, the bank couldn't discern that from their own. So if she's putting the made-up bank statements in front of the board, they're going to accept them. But a very shrewd, very clever way of making sure she was insulated. She was making transfers into her own accounts from the firm and she was raising false invoices, is that right? And then creating false bank statements. And how much in total did she squirrel away over the, the, the six years or the eight years? Started at 2.3 million. That was the original figure that came before the court. 
over time that was reviewed and there were certain amounts of it they couldn't prove. So it was settled on 1.9 million, but those are just the ones they were able to prove. Still a horrendous amount of money. Almost, I mean, it, it, it's, it's eye-watering really when you think about it. Uh, and all spent on luxury, you know, um, mm-hmm. all, all herself, all her. And did she start thieving and defrauding the company from the minute she started working there or had she been a trusted employee? Very much trusted employee, one over the uh, directors and the other staff. But they, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but they had noticed that she liked to work alone. She didn't want to share an office. She liked to be by herself. She seemed very into her work. Um, And as time went on, you know, there were small amounts going, which possibly wouldn't have been picked up but then she got bolder and bolder to the to the level that you know like who transfers twenty eight thousand pounds out in one day and there were you know it was such a regular thing that it just it just went off the scale and it was only when one of the directors said this company is going to go under and we don't know why and they met with the bank personally. She'd been very cute. She told she forged the bank mandate and said all material was to go to her and she was the only signee and various things like this. And these transfers were just slipping quietly through. She was telling them this, you know, she we think and when we looked at it again, she was trying to bankrupt it. And that meant there would have been no scrutiny. But the, the parent company, Heron Brothers, were very worried about their staff they knew the work was there they had got an amazing tender in for and for fittings to be supplied and this just wasn't making sense and action had to be taken and it didn't take too long to work out where it was and who had done it but nonetheless she had been on the take from the company for eight years before they came to that point of almost collapse where they just couldn't understand. They could see the work coming in. The books should have looked differently than they did. So she very cleverly did get away for a long time and and literally almost cost that company everything and all those employees their jobs and their livelihoods. But again, it was through this position of trust. You know, if if she, Mm. she did it in such a way that she was appearing loyal to the company and they were, they just could not get it. it and, you know, the, the, there was a number of employees were saying, this is wrong. But whenever mm. you get that everything's being presented to you on very accurate bank statements uh, and, you know, material that she was able to completely replicate, you're, you wouldn't be convinced otherwise if it's on paper. It's only mm. when it reached the point that I think it possibly the bank has contacted the directors and said, you know, I can't, we can't do this anymore. And that's mm-hmm. whenever they approached, uh, well, that's when they said, they contacted Julie and said, I need a meeting on whatever morning, but Julie didn't turn up. So they alerted police and called at her home and that was the start of it. And I presume that there was actually a, you know, you could see the the transfers going into her own personal accounts or had she set up, had she set, had she kind of kept herself at a distance from where the money coming in or was it going into her? It was going straight into her account. It was quite, but then again, if you're not looking at the checks or the transfers going out and you're presented with this 
very lifelike, um, a very authentic bank statement saying we paid this out, we brought this in. And she was, she, she is shrewd, there's no doubt about it. Um, she was fooling them by saying, oh, that 20000 was to pay for materials, that was to pay for this, that was to pay for that. And they were taking it as read until it simply could not be sustained any longer. Like all good fraudsters, it sounds to me like she had one of those very convincing personalities and, and natures. Wasn't there a story about a cancer diagnosis she claimed to have had? That was a particularly... I mean, that revolted the judge and quite a lot of us listening to it. Um, One of the directors, his wife, uh, suffered from a very rare cancer. And it it wasn't looking at all good. As a matter of fact, she'd been given a certain amount of time to live. Um, And they decided, her husband decided to try absolutely everything to try and get this fixed. And in the end, they started her on a different drug. Um, got the cancer into remission, got her stem cell transplant, and she's wonderful, which is the good end of the story. But Julie decides she has the same thing and takes this director aside and said, look, I have to go for treatment every Friday. I'm not wanting anybody to know. Uh, I want it kept secret. I don't want... This was to cover the fact that she wouldn't have sick lines coming in. And, uh, oh, of course, Julie, whatever you need, take as long as you like. So she settled on every Friday off for quite some time. And this was for chemotherapy or whatever. And the one thing that the director noticed was her hair hadn't fallen out because his wife's hair was the first thing to go. So he said, how, how, did you, how is your hair staying in? And she was, oh, I bought this special cap in America that stops the chemotherapy making your hair fall out. His first thought was, why didn't I know about that? I could have got it for my wife. But Julie wasn't getting chemotherapy. She was at the Loch Iron Resort, where she had, you know, annual membership, a couple of rounds of golf, into the spa for the day, um, lapping it up, really. And mm, on the back mm. of, of a cancer It was particularly cruel. She was constantly on the take. Now, as you said, when she arrived in court first in 2016 and you looked at what was portraying herself as a very sort of vulnerable, wronged woman, very glamorous. um, Did you think that you were going to be six years reporting on this story before you could name this woman and give the full details of what she had done? I did not, indeed. Um, we, there were, I, I did, what happened was it was in the system for a year, it kept being remanded, and a new prosecutor took over. Now there's a row over this, and it still has to be fleshed, you know, thrashed out with the company. And it was ready to go. It was ready to move to Crown Court. And suddenly this new prosecutor says, oh, oh I want a forensic accountant to go over that again. And it was delayed and delayed until the district judge at that stage said, I'm dropping this. You may bring it back another time. So the case was put out and brought back late uh, 2018, just the first month, first week of January 2019. And the charges were back. And this time it was an immediate committal to trial, not, not going through the lower court process. Again, same letter handed in. This girl is so tragically unwell and she will take her own life and we're very worried about her and her human rights and through the whole thing again 
transferred to Crown Court. Now, you've got to bear in mind, this is a woman who admitted all at police interview. And in 20, October 2019, after numerous attempts to get the charges reduced, more forensic accountants, more this, more that, in October 2019, she pleaded guilty and we all nearly passed out. But it was November 2021 when she was finally sentenced because the guilty plea triggered, I I think, I was just going over it last night, from what we can gather, 10 separate psychiatrist reports paid for by the defence, all saying the same thing. The judge wasn't having any of it. He his mind made up. So she was getting private psychiatric exe- assessments claiming that, firstly, if she was named, she was going to take drastic action. And secondly, then, if she was jailed, she was going to take drastic action. So, um, and look, we have to accept the you know, these are uh, registered psychiatrists that she used, but nonetheless, she was able to pay for that. Was there ever any evidence given as to where the money came from that she she was able to pay for that? I mean, she must have been unemployed at this point. She is, and that was fully played for by legal aid. Okay. There was, and she was given two certificates of exceptionality, which is for high-cost cases. Murder trials get one, but Mm. they... They had one particular doctor from London, and for the life of me, I can't remember his name. He actually flew over to give evidence in court. And he hadn't, you know, oh, she's vulnerable and she's got martyr syndrome because she was the third daughter and she felt left out. And as he went through his evidence, the prosecution stood up and said, did you look up her notes of the years that you haven't been dealing with her? No, I didn't need to. And do you not think this is situational stress rather than... No, no, it didn't. But then on the morning she was due to attend for sentencing, something happened. We don't know, but there was obviously some kind of attempt made. And her barrister came online and said, oh, she, she's been detained. Over, well, we've turned out she was admitted for whatever happened and discharged at two in the morning. So that put her into the hands of a national health psychiatrist who said quite clearly this is somebody who's trying to avoid. And we'd argued from day one, nobody has tried to section this woman. Um, Then we hit them with, I think, the most simple question. If she's this suicidal, why has she not been taken off the road? All those doctors who are saying this should have notified the driving authorities. Nobody did. But we couldn't get answers to that, and we just... We got the impression that the judge was just going to just let it play out, which he did, and then gave her a very hefty sentence, it must be fair to Mm -hmm, say. mm -hmm. Now, during all this case, as it it meandered its way through the courts, um, evidence was given that she had spent, of the money she stole, 500,000 was on her lifestyle. 676,000 was on that development of that lovely property you described at the beginning. 231,000 went on fashion and beauty. My God, she must have been looking amazing. In the latter times, she looked quite, she sort of planed herself down. But prior to that, she was, she wore the most beautiful clothes. I mean, you'd have been, been you know, really spiteful if you'd said otherwise. In the last Mm -hmm. days, she just dressed in black. Uh, but up until then, beautifully turned out and her immaculate, everything perfect. 
And clearly the 145,000 that went on jewellery as well was maybe removed for the courtroom. But, Didn't see too much um, of that now, to be fair. <laughs> but like, I mean, that was all the while she, she was also earning a salary from this company, obviously. And since 2016, when she was, you know, presumably sacked pending the outcome of this court case, etc., She's been still living in that house, yeah, and and enjoying a lifestyle or not? Oh, yes. Lived on it right up to the moment she was brought to court by her sister for her mm. her next, um, I think it was said to me, she's in a much smaller setting now and a lot less cleaning to do. You know, she's... Right. Yeah, I mean, she, they just, the judge just got fed up with her not turning up and said, get her here or I'll issue an arrest warrant. And... Um, <sighs> So where is she currently? Where is she serving her sentence? She's in Hyde Bank Women's Prison and that would okay. be on the edge, edges of Belfast. And this house, um, and the Sunday World ran a story there in recent weeks, that, that this house is going to be now sold. Is that right? For, to, to pay back what she owes? How does that work in the north? That's under what's known as proceeds of crime application and the house will be forfeited. However, the ex-husband has come into the picture and said, well, hold on a minute. There, you know, I would have a say in that. Difficulty is for him that he made, there may be some property there that he paid for and if he can show that. But the, the difficulty there is that, that no matter whether he had a say in it, it was built and furnished and developed and extended on the proceeds of crime. Therefore, while he may say, well, I fitted, I put the garage up, if he can prove that, well, possibly. But the whole thing has to go. And it was interesting because um, at the, the, the sentencing hearing that was done in, in three three stages, you know, they, the prosecution said their bit and the next time the defence said their bit. And this, her barrister said the principal property is on the market. And I remember I was in court for that and I looked over to the lead detective in it and shook my head and he's screwing his face up at me and I said, it's not on the market. So we had a look about the whole thing. We were keeping a very close eye on this whole situation and um, it turned out that the, the court was misled. It wasn't on the market. Never was. Uh, it, it probably still isn't now, but it's chained up at the minute. And But to actually stand up in court and say, oh, it's on the market, uh, you mm. know, there's also an issue over the mortgage. Apparently it has foreclosed or whatever it is. But, you know, the company do have to get their phones. So it seems as if this has been a long time coming, but nonetheless, justice has won out. It did in the long run. Um, there were many times um, it, it just didn't seem to be going anywhere. And the lawyers were fighting so hard to get her put into hospital. And, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, she goes to hospital what, a week and that's it all over. And she just, she actually thought that's the way it was going to go. Um, but it didn't work that way. The judge decided that whatever issues she had could be perfectly well handled in the prison. Uh, the prison governor actually attended court to lay out what they do. And it was ironic because about three days after she was jailed, I bumped into one of the prison custody officers and said, how did she do? Oh, she said she was fine. She was looking a cup of coffee. She never flinched when she got down to the cells. So, you know, you're, you're looking at somebody who really did fool a lot of people, but didn't fool the judge. He was obviously reading behind it. Getting her named was probably the, um, I, think I, I, I think it took me a wee while to actually accept that it happened. 
because every time we tried, the lawyers would come in. You know, they said we were peddling. You're peddling these things, but we weren't getting the answers to the questions required as set down in the statutory guidance. So um, getting her, and then we, we spoke to the, the, the senior director, and he said it, it was a good day. He felt justice mm-hmm. was served. And it was the journalist who had pushed that all the way, naming of her. You felt that she was, you know, continuing in a way to maybe defraud the court where she had defrauded her employer. She was coming in and she was creating this scenario that most people who go to court are just named and that's it. And they don't have a choice. Julie, I began to feel Julie was being treated in a, in a there was a two tier system. Because, you know, we have other cases coming in there and it's they're, they're distressing enough, but somebody will go in and steal a sandwich and, you know, probably eat it in front of the, the shop they stole it from and they're named and plastered everywhere and the judge reads them out for abusing other people's property and, and good nature and various things. But this particular lady did not fall and we kept on quoting you know, the European Convention or the um, European Fundamental Rights, Article 20, everybody equal before the law. God is nowhere. God is absolutely nowhere. But come the end, we got there in the end, but it, it was a six year battle to be heard. Mm. Well, it sounds as if there's a few more stories along the way in this. And obviously the sale of that house will be um, an interesting one to follow. And of course, a lot of fraudsters are very capable of reinventing themselves and Julie McBride stroke hog will still be a young enough woman when she comes out of prison. So you never know, you might cross paths again. You never know, you never know. But uh, we know we were watching her carefully and it was very frustrating whenever you go to court and you're told about this frail little butterfly of a woman when we had seen her out and about laughing, joking and her designer bags and stuff. And it was it was difficult, but we got there. We got there. Tanya Fowles, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com.